All right, I have a question for you. You don't have to answer out loud, but my question is this. How old are you? Now, that seems like a pretty straightforward and simple question on the surface, but, but if somebody asks that question, you might have to clarify something before you give them an answer. You see, when somebody asks you how old you are, they might be asking about your chronological age, but they might also be asking about your biological age. Are you aware that you have two different ages associated with your life? So your chronological age, that represents the amount of time that you've been alive and is measured by how many birthdays you have. And typically when somebody asks us how old we are, we respond with our chronological age. So if somebody asked me how old I am, I would say I'm 42. And in a couple of weeks, I'll have another birthday, so then my chronological age will go up to 43. Now, you really don't have any control over your chronological age. It's, it's based on the day that you were born. And every year, that chronological age, that number just goes up. And there's no going back. There's no way to lower that number. But you know, that chronological age, it isn't the only age that's associated with your life. Like I said, you also have what's called your biological age. Uh, doctors, they can measure your biological age by uh, measuring some things that are in your blood, and then they take your chronological age, and then they'll add or subtract a few years based on what they, what they see. And so uh, your biological age, it's really a, a measure of how healthy your cells are and how well they regenerate themselves. And so if you have uh, good, healthy cells that regenerate themselves, your biological age will be less than your chronological age. But if your, health, or if your cells aren't so healthy, then you'll, you'll have a, a biological age that is greater than your chronological age. This is why you could have two people that are, let's say, 50 years old standing side by side, and, and they might look 10 or 15 years different in age. They have the same chronological age, but different biological ages. Now, like I said, you have no control over your chronological age, but you do actually have some control over your biological age. There are certain steps that you can take to improve your cell health and to lower your biological age. In fact, the American Heart Association, they've, they've put out a list of eight steps that you can take in order to lower your biological age. Uh, they put these out last summer. They're called Life's Essential Eight. So if you want to lower your biological age, the American Heart Association says you should do these things. Number one, watch what you eat. Number two, exercise regularly. Number three, avoid tobacco. Number four, sleep enough. Number five, manage your weight. Number six, control your cholesterol. Number seven, manage your blood sugar. And number eight, manage your blood pressure. Now those steps to lower your biological age, they're not really all that profound. It's really just common sense. Now these eight steps, they might be common sense, but for a variety of reasons, many people fail to take these steps to promote and protect the health of their bodies. And you know, sadly, something similar often happens in the church. You see, the church, another name for the church is the body of Christ. And there are certain steps that churches must take in order to protect and promote the health of the body. And the steps really aren't all that profound. They're really just common sense. Now, the steps might be common sense, but for a variety of reasons, many churches fail to take these steps and the spiritual health of the body of Christ suffers. Now, the early church that we've been looking at in the book of Acts, they took these steps to protect and to promote the health of the body, and we can learn from their example. And we're going to see what the early church did today to protect and promote the health of the body when we look at the first half of chapter 6 
in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out at this time, and you can open it up to Acts chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. So that's Acts chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Now as you're turning there in your Bibles, let me just remind you of a few things that we've seen so far in the book of Acts when it comes to the church. If you remember, back in Acts chapter 2, the church was formed on the day of Pentecost when God sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within a group of about 120 believers who were in Jerusalem. And almost immediately, the church started growing. And when it started growing, it started growing very rapidly. Between chapter 2 and chapter 5, Luke has highlighted the rapid growth of the church on a number of occasions. In Acts 2.41, for example, after Peter preached a powerful sermon and pointed people to Jesus on the day of Pentecost, Luke says, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So just a few hours after the church was formed, it grew by 3,000. And then in Acts 2.47, as the believers in, in the early church were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, Luke tells us that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So every day, people were being saved in joining the church. And then in chapter 4, after Peter and John healed the paralyzed man at the temple and explained to the people who had gathered there that they healed this man by the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead, Luke tells us in verse 4 of chapter 4 that many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So in just a very short period of time, the church grew from, from 120 to 3,000 and then to 5,000. And then if you remember, as the church grew, the Jewish authorities, uh, they started becoming jealous and they started persecuting the apostles. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this and we've seen how the authorities arrested the apostles on, on multiple occasions and, and put the apostles in jail. And then they told the apostles that they need to stop teaching the people about Jesus. And they threatened the apostles with consequences if they didn't stop. They even wanted to kill the apostles. But the apostles kept on preaching and teaching about Jesus. And they kept on doing that because they had that concrete conviction that we talked about last week, that God is real and that his word is true. The apostles knew they had to obey God and they knew they had to keep their commitment to Christ despite the cost. And as the apostles kept their commitment, we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 14, that the church continued to grow. Luke says, more than ever, believers were added and multitudes of both men and women were coming to faith. So more than ever before, people were coming to faith in Christ. Multitudes of people were joining the church. Now, as the early church grew, as the early church grew, some problems started to pop up. I don't know if you've noticed this pattern in life or not, but when people gather together, problems tend to pop up. And that's true even in the church. Okay, even though God makes us into new creations when we put our faith in Christ, and, and even though the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, our old sinful nature is still there. And yes, God is sanctifying us and making us more like Christ each and every day, but that old sinful nature won't be completely done away with until we're glorified in heaven someday. And so as long as we're here on this earth, that old sinful nature is still a part of us. And as long as that old sinful nature is still a part of us, when people gather together, even in the church problems will pop up. Well, as we look at the first half of Acts chapter 6 today, we're going to see a problem pop up in the church. And we're also going to see that the early church took some steps to protect and to promote the health of the body 
when this problem did pop up. So, so let me read the first seven verses here in Acts chapter 6, and then we'll talk about what we can learn from them and what we must do to protect and to promote the health of this body known as City View Church. So if you are able, would you please stand at this time in honor of God's word as I read chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Here's what the scripture says. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your, for your word that is true, and your word that you've given us to teach us and to instruct us. And I pray, God, now that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth and to apply it into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> So if you notice, the passage starts off with another statement that tells us how the church was growing at this time. Verse 1 says, in these days, the, the disciples were increasing in number. As we talked about, the early church was growing rapidly in these days and, and in these weeks following Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And based on Luke's descriptions of life in the early church, everything seemed to be going pretty well for the most part. The early church seemed to be a healthy body. I mean, yeah, there was that one incident with Ananias and Sapphira. But other than that, the picture that, that Luke paints of the early church is that it was a healthy body. But now a problem has popped up that is threatening the health of that body. One group of people in the church has voiced a complaint about another group of people in the church. And when the complaint is made, the apostles step in and they propose a solution and the church agrees to that solution, and it seems to be a successful resolution because the passage ends in verse 7 with another statement about the church growing. Verse 7 says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so what I want to do today is I want to go back and look at the details of what happened in between those, those two bookend statements about the church growing to find out what it was that this early church did when the problem popped up to protect and to promote the health of that body. And so as we look at the details of this passage, the main point that I'm going to make today is this. Because problems pop up when people gather together, we must take steps to protect and promote the health of the church. Okay? Because problems pop up when people gather together, we must take steps to protect and promote the health of the church. And as we look at the details of this passage, I'm going to share with you three sets of steps that we must take to protect and promote the health of this body. Okay, the first set of steps that we must take is this. The first set of steps we must take is to diminish divisions in the body of Christ. To protect and to promote the health of the church, we must take steps to diminish divisions in the body of Christ. You see, as the early church grew, 
a division started to form within the body. And this was because back in the early church, the, the believers in the church tended to come from one of two backgrounds. And the differences between the two backgrounds created some division between the two groups. You see, one group of Christians in the early church consisted of Jewish people who were born and raised in Judea. Judea is that area that surrounds Jerusalem. And these, these Jewish people, when they heard the good news about Jesus and put their faith in him, they became known as Hebrew Christians. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jewish people are sometimes referred to as Hebrews. And, and the Jewish nation, the reason why they're sometimes referred to that is the Jewish nation started with a man named Abraham. One of Abraham's descendants, or I'm sorry, one of his ancestors, rather, was named Eber. And so a lot of scholars think that the Jewish people are called Hebrews after that ancestor of Abraham, Eber. Well, these Jewish people from Judea who became Christians, they were proud of their Hebrew heritage. Even after they became Christians, they still embraced many of their Hebrew traditions. And this is because they grew up with them, and it was really just a part of their, their identity. Now, at this time, the Hebrew Christians would not have spoken the Hebrew language. Okay? Uh, up until about 500 B.C., the Hebrew people spoke a language that we call Hebrew. But around 500 B.C., in Jerusalem and that area around it, the Hebrew people started speaking a language known as Aramaic. So these Hebrew Christians had a strong Hebrew heritage, but they spoke a language known as Aramaic. In fact, this would have been the language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic. Okay, that might surprise some people who assume that Jesus spoke Hebrew, but Aramaic was the language in Judea at the time. And so you have this group of Christians, this, this group of Aramaic-speaking Hebrew Christians from Judea in the church. Now, the other group of Christians in the church was a group known as the Hellenists. And now, these Christians, they were Jewish people, but they were born and raised outside of Judea, in other parts of the Roman Empire. Now, for one reason or another, they moved to Jerusalem at some point in their life. Okay, it's possible that some of them had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost to celebrate that feast. And when they heard Peter preach his sermon, they put their faith in Christ. And, and they just decided to stay in Jerusalem and make that their home so that they could be a part of the church that had formed there. But it's also possible that some of these Hellenists had moved to Jerusalem so that they could die there. Okay, it sounds kind of strange, but it wasn't all that unusual for Jewish people who were born outside of Judea to move to Jerusalem when they got older so that they could die and be buried in the holy city. And so, uh, so maybe some of these folks had moved to Jerusalem for that reason, and then they heard the good news about Jesus and put their faith in him and became a part of the church that was there. Okay, so regardless of why they came to Jerusalem, these Hellenist Christians, they would have spoken Greek, okay, because that was the common language in the Roman Empire at the time. The Roman Empire had just conquered the, the Greek Empire, and so uh, the people at that time in the Roman Empire typically spoke Greek. And so these, these Hellenist Christians, they grew up in a Greek culture, and they, they spoke the Greek language, and they had Greek traditions. And so in the early church, here's what you have. You have, you have one group of Aramaic-speaking Hebrew Christians from Judea, and then you have another group of Greek-speaking Hellenist Christians that were from other parts of the Roman Empire. Two distinct groups with two different backgrounds. But it's important to note that these two groups were all Christians. Okay? It's important to note that both of these groups were comprised of people who believed that Jesus is the Messiah that God sent to establish his kingdom on earth. 
And both groups were comprised of people who believed that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead three days later. And both groups of people were comprised of people who had repented of their sin and trusted Jesus to forgive them. Both groups were a part of the body of Christ. Both groups were united by a common faith. Both groups were a part of one church. Both groups were Christians. But there were language and cultural differences between the two groups that, that created some challenges when it came to functioning as a single, unified, healthy body. Now, these challenges of functioning as a single, unified, healthy body, they, they came to the surface one day. They, they became very apparent one day when the Hellenist Christians voiced a complaint against the Hebrew Christians. Okay, verse 1 says that the Hellenist Christians complained that their widows were not receiving an adequate share of the daily distribution. Okay, so here's the problem that has popped up. Now, what's, what's Luke talking about? What's, what's all the fuss about? Well, to understand what the problem is and what the fuss is all about here, you have, to, you have to realize that in Bible days, the widows didn't work. Okay, In Bible days, widows were unable to earn a living, and so they depended upon the support of others to survive. This is why when you read through the Old Testament, God instructed his people to take care of widows. And that tradition carried over into the early church. In the early church, remember, we've read about this. People would sell some of their houses or their fields, and they would bring the money to the apostles, and then the apostles would distribute that money to the people in the church who were in need. Well, the widows would have been among those who were in need. And so the apostles, they may have just given the money directly to the widows and said, okay, go out to the market, buy yourself some food. Or the apostles may have gone to the market and bought the food and then given the food to the widows. We don't know exactly how the system worked, but we do know that every day the widows were receiving some kind of provision. Now, the Hellenist Christians are upset because it seems to them that their widows are receiving less than the Hebrew widows. Now, most likely this, this difference in the distribution was not intentional. We've seen several times throughout the book of Acts how the early church was devoted to taking care of one another. So here's what probably happened. Okay, in the church, all of the Hebrew Christians probably congregated together, and all of the Hellenist Christians, they probably congregated together because they had similar backgrounds and spoke the similar languages, but the interaction between those two groups was probably pretty minimal, okay, due to the language barriers and some of the cultural differences. Now, the apostles, they were Hebrew Christians, and if the interaction between the Hebrews and the Hellenists was limited, the apostles may not have been fully aware of the widows in the Hellenist group and exactly what their needs were. And so they may have inadvertently left some of the Hellenist widows out of the distribution, or maybe they didn't give the Hellenists enough to distribute to their widows. Okay, it was probably an accidental oversight created by the differences in the two groups, not something that was intentional. Now, this week, as I was studying and preparing for this message, I, I learned a new word. I added to my vocabulary this week. The new word that I learned is a word, homophily. If you're ever in a spelling bee, that would be H-O-M-O-P-H-I-L-Y, homophily. It's an English word that comes from two Greek words that have been smashed together, and it literally means love of sameness. Now, this word was coined in the 1950s by two social scientists who were studying friendships in my hometown of Pittsburgh. 
And so what these two social scientists discovered when they studied friendships in Pittsburgh is that people tend to form friendships with others who are similar to them. So if there's a big group of diverse people and you just kind of let them go, what will naturally happen is that people will gravitate to those in the group who have a similar ethnic background, those who have a similar age, those who have a similar education level, those who have similar interests. And what these social scientists discovered is that we just have this natural tendency to gravitate to people who are like us. And we have this kind of desire, this natural desire to just want to hang out with people who are like us rather than people who are different than us. And other studies have been done over the years that have just confirmed this. So it's well documented that we're just naturally drawn to people who are like us. And like I said, the technical name for this is homophily. I don't know how many people know that word, but I bet most people are familiar with the colloquial expression that captures the idea. Okay, what do birds of a feather do? Yeah, flock together or fly together, right? Birds of a feather fly together. Birds of a feather flock together. That expression captures the idea of homophily. Now, homophily is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is something that we need to be aware of. Okay, we need to be aware of homophily because it will show up in churches. And when it shows up in churches, it can lead to divisions in the body of Christ. Just like people in society in general, within a church, people tend to hang out with those who are most like them. If you don't believe me, just, just look around the next time you attend a big church-wide fellowship event, whether it's at this church or another church. I'll tell you what you're likely to see at that fellowship event. You're likely to see all the families with little kids sitting in one area, and then you're likely to see all the senior saints sitting in another area. Or you might see people that have one ethnic background hanging out together and people in a different ethnic background hanging out together. And if you're in Maryland, you'll see a group that likes the Ravens hanging out together and a group who likes the Redskins, that's what they still call them there, hanging out together. That's homophily. And it shows up in the church just like it shows up in society. Now these researchers who have studied homophily, they've discovered a, an interesting correlation. And here's what they've discovered. The bigger the group, the more homophily tends to show up. So what that means is in a small church, you probably won't see too much homophily because the people in that church really don't have a whole lot of choice as to who they can hang out with. But as the church, as the church grows, that's when you start to see more and more homophily showing up. So here's what that means for us at City View. As we grow as a church here at City View, we must be careful that we don't distance ourselves from others in the congregation who are different than us. We live in a diverse community. And it's likely that as this church grows, this body is going to become even more diverse than it already is. And as, as this church grows and becomes more diverse, the likelihood that homophily will show up and the potential for there to be division will increase. And so we've got to be mindful of that. And we've got to take steps to diminish divisions in the body. That means we have to be intentional about interacting and befriending others in the, in the body who are different than us. So make it a point next time we have a, a, a fellowship event. Make it a point to sit with someone who's in a different generation than you. Or make it a point to talk to someone after the service who, who has a different set of interests than you. And when we have our combined events with our, our second service, brothers and sisters, make it a point to get to know them. 
yeah, there's language barriers, there's cultural barriers, and that might make it a little awkward and uncomfortable to take that step. But taking that step will help protect and promote the health of this body of Christ. So to protect and to promote the health of the body, we have to take steps to diminish divisions in the church. That's the first set of steps we must take. The second set of steps we must take is this. We must lighten loads in the body of Christ. Okay, to protect and to promote the health of the body, we must take steps to lighten loads in the body of Christ. You see, as the early church grew, the amount of work that the apostles had to do increased. There were more and more people that needed to be taught the word of God. There were more and more people that needed to be prayed for. There were more and more people that needed to be ministered to. As that early church was growing, the load that the apostles had to carry was getting heavier and heavier. If you remember, when somebody sold a, a house or a field, they would bring the money to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute to the ones who had need. Well, that means the apostles had to keep track of who had a need and how much money was given. And, well, based on this complaint, they had to make sure that everything was distributed fairly. So the apostles, they had to keep up with all of this. And as the church grew, that means their workload was getting heavier and heavier. Okay, they had to preach and they had to pray. They had to budget and distribute this money. So it's no surprise as the church grew that some of the needs in the body started to, to go unaddressed. Okay, like I said, the Hellenist Christians, widows, they probably weren't neglected intentionally. Most likely the apostles were just struggling to keep up with the increased workload that came with a growing church. And so these these Hellenist Christians, when they voiced their complaint, the apostles realized that their plate was starting to get too full. And so they called the church together for what was essentially a town hall business meeting. And in verses 2 through 4, the apostles say to the thousands of believers who had gathered for this business meeting, they say, it's not right that we give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So basically, here's what the apostles are saying in verses 2 through 4. They're saying, church, God has called us to preach and to pray. Those are our two primary responsibilities here within the body. But right now, we're not able to devote ourselves to those responsibilities because we're too busy serving tables. Serving tables was an expression that the, the Jewish people used to refer to that distribution to the widows. And so the apostles, they asked the church to choose seven men who can take care of the widows' distribution, and that would free them up to do what God had gifted and called them to do, which was preach and pray. Now, the apostles, they weren't saying that serving tables and taking care of the widows was, was beneath them. They were just saying that God had gifted them and called them to fulfill a particular role in the church, and that was to preach and to pray. And if the apostles were going to fulfill that calling, they needed some members in the church to help lighten their load. Now, in verse 5, the church agrees that the apostles' proposal is a good idea. And so they select seven men to take over the daily distribution to the widows. Now, these men, verse 4 tells us, they had to be men of character. Okay? It says they had to be men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Character matters to God. The men who were chosen to serve in this role had to have a good reputation. They had to be spiritually mature, and they had to be full of wisdom. 
So in other words, they had to know how to take God's word and apply it not only in their own lives, but also in the life of the church. And so the church, they, they chose seven men from the congregation who had that kind of character. And interestingly, it seems that all seven were Hellenists. Okay, if you look at those names that are listed there, those seven names, they're all Greek names. So that suggests that these seven men who were chosen were Hellenists. And if indeed they were, that's, that's a wise move on the part of the church. Okay, it's a wise move because it was the Hellenists whose widows were being neglected. And so choosing seven men from the Hellenist group would then help ensure that the, their widows were being cared for. They would be in touch with the widows in that part of the congregation, and then they could ensure that they were getting adequate care. Now, some people, they believe these seven men were the first deacons in the church because they had to have the kind of character that a deacon has. They functioned and served like deacons. Other people, they think it's best to see these men as forerunners or, or prototypes of deacons because they're not actually called deacons in the passage. Okay? It says they deaked, but it doesn't call them deacons. Regardless of whether they were official deacons or not, verse 6 does tell us that the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed for them. Now, why did they do this? Why did the apostles lay their hands on them and pray for them? Well, in the Old Testament, laying hands on somebody, this was a way to show that you were transferring a responsibility to them. So, for example, if you go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 27, Moses is getting close to his, his time of death, and he asked God to appoint a successor to lead the Jewish people. And God answered Moses' prayer, and he tells Moses that Joshua will take over the leadership after he dies. And so God then tells Moses to take Joshua aside and lay his hands on him in front of the entire congregation. And that would show everybody in the congregation that Moses was transferring his leadership responsibilities over to Joshua. Now in the New Testament, when you lay hands on somebody, what's often happening is you're setting that person apart for a particular task. And I think when the apostles laid their hands on these seven men in front of the church, I think they were doing it really for both of those reasons. I think when the apostles laid their hands on these seven men in front of the church, they were, they were showing the church that they were setting these seven men apart for this particular task to take care of the widows, but also transferring that responsibility over to them. You see, taking this step to lighten their load was an important and necessary step for the apostles to take in order to protect and promote the health of body. Now, if you don't know, my background is engineering. And for the past 18 years, I taught engineering mechanics courses in addition to math courses at the community college in Baltimore. And so I'm going to pull one of my old engineering lessons off the shelf today, and I'm going to show you how we can lighten loads to protect and promote the health of the body of Christ. So take a look at these two diagrams on the screen. Okay, in both diagrams, there's a 100-pound load that needs to be lifted. Now, in the left-hand picture, there's a single rope that's attached to that 100-pound load. That means you've got to pull on that rope with 100 pounds of force in order to lift it. But if you notice in the right-hand picture, there's an extra pulley that has been added to the load. Okay, it's essentially become a part of the load. And that extra pulley allows you to have two segments of rope attached to that 100-pound load. So now you only have to pull with 50 pounds of force. 
Okay, each segment of rope, when you pull down with 50 pounds, will pull up with 50 pounds. Well, 50 plus 50 is 100, so that would be, that would be enough force to lift that load. Okay, and you can add more pulleys and more segments of rope, and you can actually reduce the amount of force that you have to pull with even more. If you get four segments of rope attached to the load, you'd only have to pull with 25 pounds. If you can get 10 segments, you'd only have to pull with 10 pounds. Okay, the principle is this. As more strands of rope are attached to the load, it becomes easier and easier to lift the load. Now, in a church, as more and more people attach themselves to a ministry and serve, it becomes easier and easier for that church to lift the load that it has to carry. It becomes easier and easier for the church to lift its load because, because people can then focus on those things that they're gifted to do and called to do. And that's going to improve efficiency and effectiveness. And it's also going to help prevent people from getting burned out. So when these seven men were chosen to take care of the widow's distribution, the apostles were able to focus more and more on preaching and prayer which is what they were gifted to do. And so they weren't getting burned out by trying to do that and take care of the widows. Okay, that's why the church continued to grow when the seven men were chosen. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but at City View Church, we've been growing over the past few months. And we should thank God for that. As the church grows, so does the amount of work it takes to minister to the body. Now, I'm very thankful for all of our ministry leaders here at City View Church. Our ministry leaders, they do so much to ensure that this church is helping people know Christ, helping people grow in Christ, and helping people go out to share Christ. And I'm thankful for all of you who give your time and your energy to support and to serve in these various ministries that we have here at the church. But as this church grows... Well, guess what? The load that each of our ministry leaders will need to lift is going to grow too. And so as this church grows, each of our ministry leaders, they're going to need some additional segments of rope to help lift that load. And so if you haven't yet found a ministry to serve in, let me know. Let John know. If God has brought you here to this body of believers, he's, he's done it for a reason. He's done it because he has a place that he wants you to serve. And the Bible teaches that in 1 Corinthians 12. And so if you're not sure where that place is, John and I will help you figure it out. And we'd be glad to do it. We'd be glad to help you figure out where God would want you to serve because to protect and to promote the health of this church, we must take steps to lighten the loads in the body of Christ. Now the third set of steps we have to take to protect and to promote the health of this body is we must take steps to generate growth in the body of Christ. We must take steps to generate growth in the body of Christ. After the seven men were chosen to take over the widow's distribution, verse 7 says that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Even a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. After the men were chosen to serve tables and after they were chosen to take over the distribution to the widows, what do we see? The church continued to grow. Verse 7 says that even some of the priests in Jerusalem were becoming obedient to the faith. So what can we conclude about the early church from verse 7? Well, I think one thing that we can conclude from verse 7 is that the early church was taking steps to generate growth by reaching its community with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And as we continue to study in the book of Acts, as we get further into it, we're going to see that the early church was also taking steps to generate growth by reaching the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only God can give the growth, but the early church was taking whatever steps it could to help generate it. The early church, they took steps to tell people both near and far that they could be forgiven of their sins by putting their faith in Jesus. And the early church was taking whatever steps it could to, to call people to make a commitment to follow Christ, to receive them as Savior, but also to follow him as Lord. In other words, the early church was taking steps to make disciples. If you notice, that's what verse 7 says was happening. It says the number of disciples multiplied greatly. You know what a disciple is? A disciple isn't just somebody who believes in Jesus. A disciple is somebody who is fully committed to following Jesus. A disciple is somebody who, who is doing everything they possibly can each and every day to become more like Jesus, to model their lives after his. The early church was taking steps to generate growth in the body by making disciples both near and far. And the church thrived as they did that. Church thrived. Now, if you have kids, when you take them to the pediatrician, you know what, you know what they always do there? They always check their height and their weight, right? Kind of standard procedure. And do you know why? Do you know why they're always checking the height and the weight? They want to make sure your child is growing. Okay, you see, a child's growth is an indicator of a child's health. If the child's not growing, that can indicate a problem. In fact, there's a name. If a child's not growing, there's a name for it. It's called a failure to thrive. You know, in the same way, if a church isn't growing by reaching its community and the nations with the gospel, or at least attempting to do so, well, that indicates that there's a problem. A church that is not taking steps to reach the community and the nations with the gospel will fail to thrive. If a church is not taking steps to reach the community and the nations with the gospel, it will fail to thrive. Let me, let me tell you about two churches back in, in Maryland. In the mid-1980s, there was a church plant in Maryland that was about two years old. We'll call this church number one. In the next county over, there was another church that had been planted and was about 32 years old. And we'll call that church number two. So church number one was a new church had just a couple of dozen people gathering together on a Sunday in a small rented facility. Church number two, well-established, about 150 to 200 people attending every Sunday in a nice big building that the church owned. Well, one day back in the mid-1980s, the local director of missions came to the two pastors of these churches and, and asked if they would like to get their churches involved in doing some mission work. The pastor of church number one said, yes, absolutely, with love to get involved in doing some mission work. We may be small, but we'll do whatever we can to reach our community and the nations for Christ. And from that point on, church number one has made outreach and missions a priority. Now, when, pastor, when the pastor of church number two was asked if he would like to get his church involved in doing some mission work, he said, he says, no thanks. He said, you know, we, we just got so much going on here. We're just content with what's going on and, you know, the way things are going here among ourselves. And for the next 35 years, church number two didn't really do much to reach their community for Christ and really didn't do anything at all that could be considered 
missions work. Do you know what those two churches look like today? Church number one is thriving. Church number one has about 400 members and is regularly seeing people coming to faith in Christ and, and joining the church. That church is growing. Church number two was recently on the verge of closing its doors. They got down to about 15 or 20 people attending on a Sunday and their pastor retired while he still could do so on his own terms. And they thought about shutting down at that point about a year and a half ago. But they decided to, to, to keep going and they called a pastor with hopes that he would turn things around. Now, this, this new pastor of church number two, he's a friend of mine, and he understands that a church has to take steps to, to generate growth if it's going to be a healthy church that thrives. And so my friend's been working hard over the last 18 months to help his church get involved in outreach and missions, and, and praise God, they are starting to see some growth, and it looks like things might be starting to turn around there. Well, I had lunch with this pastor friend of mine shortly before we moved here to Maryland, and we got to talking about the history of the two churches. And I'll never forget what my pastor friend said to me. He said, you know, he's like, I've got all the attendance records of both churches for the last 35, 40 years since they were formed. And I've looked through the data, and here's what I've discovered. In the mid-1980s, when church number one said yes to getting involved in outreach and missions and made those things a priority, that's when that church started to take off and thrive. But when the church I'm pastoring, church number two, when they said no to outreach and missions, when this church chose just to focus on ministering to themselves rather than reaching others with the gospel, that's when this church started to die. As you look at the data, the correlation is clear. And so brothers and sisters, I want us to learn from these two churches. And I want us to learn from the early church in the book of Acts. If we want City View Church to thrive, we must take steps to generate growth in the body. That means we must take steps to emphasize outreach and missions. We must take steps to impact our community and the nations with the gospel. We must, because the day that a church stops emphasizing outreach and missions, that's the day that a church will start to die. And so to protect and to promote the health of this church, we must take steps to generate growth. We must take steps to emphasize outreach and missions. We're doing that, and we're going to continue to do that. Now, when churches take steps to generate growth, and when God blesses that and they do grow, when people and more and more people start gathering together, well, as we talked about, problems might pop up. When churches grow, people in the church might, might only want to hang out with those who are like them, and that can lead to divisions in the church. When churches grow unsupported ministry leaders will have heavier loads to lift, and that can lead to inefficiency and burnout. And when churches grow, people may start to focus so much on ministering to themselves that they stop making efforts to reach their community and the world with the gospel, and that can lead to a failure to thrive. If any of those scenarios play out, the body of Christ will suffer. And so that's why, brothers and sisters, here at City View Church, we must take steps to diminish divisions in the body, we must take steps to lighten loads in the body, and we must take steps to generate growth in the body. So will you commit to taking those steps? I hope that you will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning. Lord, we thank you for the church, the church that you formed on the day of Pentecost when you sent 
your Holy Spirit to come and live within those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of the members in that early church who were so committed, Lord, to, to diminishing divisions in the body, to protect and to promote the health of it. And we, we thank you, Lord, for the steps that the early church took to lighten loads so that the leaders wouldn't be overburdened and that freed them up to continue to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ so that more could hear and put their faith in him and be forgiven. We thank you, Lord, for the commitment that the early church had to reaching not only the community around them, but, but the nations with the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would learn from their example and that we would take those same steps too. Lord, I thank you for the people that you've drawn here to City View Church, the way you've assembled us as a body. I thank you, Lord, for, for the way that you are going to, to glorify yourself in us and through us as we seek to follow your word, as we put Jesus Christ first in our lives and, and commit ourselves to becoming more like him each and every day. God, we just thank you for your faithfulness that through all the ups and downs of life that we can count on you to be there. Lord, when things are going well, you get all the glory. And Lord, in those times when life is a struggle, we turn to you and we trust you, knowing that you are sovereign, that you are faithful, and that you are good. We know that you are good because you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen.